Well, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We'll finish up chapter 14, then we'll do chapter 15 today, which we should be able to actually accomplish since 15 is the shortest chapter in the book. Let's pray. Father, once again, <coughs> we thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have revealed so much about yourself, about us, about what it is that you require from us. We thank you that you've revealed so much about the end of the story so that people may see that they may flee the wrath that is to come and that we may be encouraged in that knowing that uh, you win in the end, you crush your foes and that one day Sin is going to be eradicated. It will be no more, never again even to be hinted at. And so, Lord, we look so much forward to that day. Help us to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were looking at the first part of chapter 14, and we saw the, the lamb and the 144,000 witnesses. We saw... Uh, these three angels, one of whom was proclaiming the eternal gospel, one of whom was proclaiming that judgment was to come, and the other that the, those who took the mark of the beast and who worshipped him were going to bring to themselves the unmixed, undiluted wrath of God. The question was asked last week, um, if somebody takes the mark of the beast, are they damned? And that answer is yes. That is an unequivocal yes, because that comes from God himself. That was the message of that last angel. Now this morning, John is going to see another sight, um, and, and what he sees are two symbols. These are events that are coming and he sees these events characterized by two reapers. Now, for those of us, uh, anybody who um, has anything to do with agriculture gets this one. If you have fruit trees, at some point, hopefully, those fruit trees are going to produce something called fruit, right? Usually takes a few years, and then all of a sudden when they start coming in, the fruit is on the tree. Now, there is another activity now. You've planted it. You have taken care of that tree. Now what is the, the task that is left, hopefully on an annual basis? Picking it, reaping. When you plant grain, the grain is in the field. But the grain in the field is not really going to be profitable unless you go and you harvest the grain. And then you bring it in and you are then able to use it. And so we're going to have, John sees, these two depictions of reaping. That's in the last half of chapter 14. So let's start 
at verse 9. Excuse me. We'll start at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold. So here we go again. It's then I looked. He's seeing something different. Behold, but we need to pay attention. A white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, to understand this, we need to, under, we need to identify different people and parts of this, right? So, he looks and he sees sitting on the cloud one like a son of man. Now, this one who sits on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, like the son of man. Who is this person? This is Jesus. Angels aren't depicted as having crowns. And the Son of Man was Jesus. Frankly, it was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And so this is Jesus. And he is reaping. Because the time, the, the harvest is ripe. Now we're going to get a clue as to who is being talked about by that word. Now that word is used twice here in the last part of chapter 14 when it talks about being ripe. They are not the same word. This one, really, this is the only time this word is translated ripe. The, every other time this word is used, it's used I believe 13 times in the New Testament, Every other time that it's used, it's to dry up or it is to wither. So, for instance, if you think back to Jesus healing the man with the withered hand, that's this word. If you think back to the fig tree, Jesus comes, he, 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 he wants to get something off of this fig tree, it's got no fruit on it, he curses it, and what does the fig tree do? It withers. And in fact, the next morning, the disciples come out and go, look at the tree. It's basically withered away. Now, why did the fig tree get cursed? It was unfruitful. It was unproductive. So, who's getting reaped in this chapter? Unbelievers are getting reaped. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus told a parable that talks about this event. So, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Go ahead and keep your finger in Revelation. We will end up back there eventually.
Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to go then and to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now drop down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, back in Revelation, who's being reaped? The tares are being reaped. The unbelievers are being reaped. Why is the good fruit being left? Why is the good fruit, why is the, why is the, the, the grain being left? So it can be brought into the barn. That's going back to the parable. So it can go into the millennial kingdom. That's the immediate context. Remember, the the millennial kingdom is going to be populated by those who are redeemed, who are going to survive the the tribulation. Those are the people who are going to repopulate the earth during the time of the millennial kingdom. So, the idea here is those who are unredeemed are being removed. Now, that is going to take place. This this is primarily going to be fulfilled in the time of the bold judgments, which are coming. So in the bold judgments, much of humanity is going to be taken away. That's how severe. Now, listen, it's already been severe, hasn't it? Because so far, at least half the population of the planet is already dead by this point. Four billion people. 
And there are a bunch more fixing to leave. Questions to there. Judgment is coming. And in fact, at this point, judgment is imminent. This is, we're not talking about something in the distant future. We're talking about something that is fixing to come, knocking. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. So we have the reaper that is going in and reaping the tares. Now we have another reaper, and this one is going for the grapes of wrath. When John Steinbeck wrote his novel, the grapes of wrath comes from here. Now, it's interesting because these grapes are ripe, and this is ripe in the sense that we understand ripeness. They are at their prime they're gonna get maximum production. Except what do these grapes represent? Yeah, they represent blood because it's judgment. The time for judgment is complete. It's full. It has has reached its maximum maturity. And the idea here you have these clusters being put into a wine press. Now, now, how was wine made in that time? In fact, it's not terribly different, I guess, than how wine is made today in certain places. What do, what do, you, what do you do? How do you make wine? Okay, you squeeze it. Now, there are some places, I guess, that are, you know, I guess the purists would use their feet. Why that makes it pure beats me. I have no idea. I wish Tom and Lorenda were here this morning. Maybe they could explain that. Although I don't think they do it that way themselves. See, I've got some heads shaking back there. You press them. This is one of Dave's favorite words, flipsis. It's pressure. You're taking it and you're squeezing it in order to get all of the juice out of there. And then you take that juice and you make your wine out of it. These grapes, oh, they're ready. They represent the wrath of God. This, when it talks about, um, you have them, they get squeezed, and they produce enough 
that the blood coming out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles, now that is about four, between four and five feet off the ground for a distance of 200 miles. Is that also referenced in battle? Okay, so the question is, is that also referenced in battle? What this is representing, what he's talking about here is Armageddon. He is talking about the, the battle where uh, the beast, he brings his armies and they are fighting against God and they lose badly. Remember, this is the one where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to get more into that in chapter 19, but it's already been referenced, right? In fact, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, where it talks about Gog and Magog coming against God, and they get slaughtered. And the remember, the angels call to the birds of mid-heaven, come, feast on the bodies of men, small, great, rich, poor, and be filled. And so that is what this is referring to. So men, unrepentant men, are going to be judged in one of two ways. They're either going to be judged in, by the reaping of the tares and taken off to judgment in that way, or they're going to be judged in the Battle of Armageddon. Those are the two ways. Gunnar, you had a question. Okay, so the, the comment is, is that there's a line of scripture somewhere that talks about uh, the earth splitting when Jesus returns. That's in Zechariah, I believe that's Zechariah 12. And what that's referring to, uh, might be 14. When Jesus, when Jesus returns, his foot is going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to be split. Um, many years ago, we went to Israel with uh, another couple here from church. And... Um, we had a Jewish tour guide and we were in Jerusalem and he goes, have you heard that when Messiah comes back, his foot is gonna to touch down on the Mount of Olives and, and it's gonna split? And he says, yeah, we've heard that. We'd had a lot of conversations. He was much more familiar with the Talmud than he was with the Old Testament. He says, would you like to know where that is? Well, yeah, we would. He says, you see that traffic signal right there? He says, yeah, that's where it's gonna happen. Because right there, that is where the Mount of Olives, that's the crest. And it, it splits this way, and so that's where it's going to happen, and it's going to divide. Now, at Armageddon, they're not going to be squeezed. The people at Armageddon, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find that they are killed with the sword that comes out from the mouth of the Lamb. 
they are slain that way. And so what they're getting at here, again, is that you have two waves. You have two phases in how this judgment is going to be carried out. You've got the bull judgments on the one hand, and then you've got Armageddon on the other hand. Armageddon comes at the after the bull judgments do. In fact, the sixth bull actually prepares the way for some of the army that is against God in order to get to their final destination. God actually prepares the way for them to get there so that they can be judged. They think they're coming to win. They think they're coming to overcome. They've got another thing coming. Okay, questions till there, up to that point. Okay, the question is, and it's a good one, is this hyperbole where it talks about the, hor the blood coming up to the bridles, is that hyperbole or is that actually going to happen? That's a tough one. Um, and again, like most everything in Revelation, commentators are split on that issue. Um, I mean, number one, in order to get blood that deep, uh, how do you contain it? You know, four to five feet deep, you've got to be able to contain that in order to, to build up that kind of depth. I've heard s there were a number of them that said that uh, the word that's used there is, is, almost, is, is one that can be used to splatter. And so, uh, let's see now, splatter is the event, spatter is the actual product of the event, technically. And so you have where the, the blood is being spattered as, as things are going on. It's deep enough that when you step in it, you know, you get the spray that's coming up off, and that spray is enough to, to, to reach up to the horse's bridles. In either event, either way, this is a cataclysmic event. There is blood everywhere, and you cannot be unstained by it if you're in it. And so, the, and again, the idea of uh, the, beasts of the, uh, the, uh, the beasts of the earth coming to scavenge on the bodies that are remaining and the, and the birds of the heavens being able to come down and feast. Uh, now, you think about that. What, why, why is that part of the equation here, by the way? That the, bo the bodies of those that are killed are going to be scavenged. Why is that part of this? Why not just vaporize them? Why is it that, that the idea that they are going to become food for beasts of the field and birds of the air, why is that part of this? I knew I married her for a reason. It's the shame. Remember that in that culture, it was shameful to leave a body exposed. And the idea that you were going to become food for animals would be 
utterly shameful. And so again, that's, that's the whole thing that's being, every part of this judgment is, is coming down. It, it, why tell somebody ahead of time that this is coming? It's a warning, absolutely. Listen, you think it's going to go this way. God says it's going to go this way. And where you think somehow you're going to be able to cast off God's fetters, Psalm 2, right? We're going to cast off your fetters. We're going to be free. We're going to be, we are going to be God. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, no, not even close. Gunner. Okay, the question is, is this the same incident where it takes many months for Israel to cleanse the land? And that answer is yes. That one has to happen here. So again, when you look at um, Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about Israel, um, they're going to be burning uh, the, the weapons of war from these armies that have come against them for seven years. Well, that has to be here uh, prior to the millennial kingdom because after the millennial kingdom, you get a new heaven, you get a new earth, and there's no time for any of that other. And so, yes, that time is now. That's where this would be occurring. The judgments that have been coming from God to this point have been diluted. They've been metered. Intermixed with the judgment has been mercy. The judgment on some is total, but that's not extended to all to this point. Unrepentant men have been exposed. Okay, so we've had the locusts that had the power to sting and to make people be in agony, to to be so in pain, to wish for death, but death eludes them. They're given a foretaste of what they're about to experience forever. It's again... Look, this is what life is going to be like for you forever. Turn. You still have a chance to turn. You can still repent. You can still choose to believe. That time is coming to an end. You know, it's interesting.
No one really wants to talk about God's wrath. Have you noticed that? No one really likes to talk about God's wrath. Everybody, you know, <laughs> when's the last time you, you drove down the street and you saw a bumper sticker saying, God is wrath? Which, what's the one that you see? Have you seen one? Okay. Okay. So judgment is at hand. Um, but even that, frankly, that is muted. Judgment is at hand. Okay. That's true. Judgment is coming to be at hand. Judgment, judgment's at hand for many today. Um, there were a couple of kids, a couple of teenagers killed in a car crash on Highway 193 the other night. Turns out I know the father of one of them. Found out, you know, entirely in an unrelated way. When those kids are going down the street, they weren't thinking that they were going to be meeting God shortly. That was not in their mind. You know how I know? Because if they were thinking that, they probably wouldn't have been speeding. So they would hit the tree. When you hit a tree, tree usually wins. Now that's on an individual scale. Here we're talking about this is on a global scale. And it continues, chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. All of the, all of the seals, all of the trumpets, have led up to this. So when you talk about judgment, when you see a fireworks show, most often the way you have a fireworks show is you have individual shells going up. Now some of these things are big. Some of these shells are, you know, eight inches around. They're the ones that go real high up in the air and they go real, real wide. And so you've got these individual shots going up. And then after that goes on for a while, and maybe it's even set to music, so it's all synchronized. When you get to the end of the show, you have something called a finale rack. A finale rack is where you have all kinds of stuff going up at the same time, right? That's the part that's really, I mean, it's really fun to watch, right? Because there's stuff going on all over the place. The bold judgments are God's finale rack when it comes to judgment. They're going to be in rapid succession and they are not going to be metered. This is where everything comes out. Up till now we've seen where, all right, here comes this judgment and it affects a third of 
the sea, or it affects a third of the rivers and the streams. You don't see any of that with the bowls. Those are all, it was all of it. And so this is going to be something that is going to be utterly, utterly cataclysmic. So here you have, you've got seven angels coming out. Where do they come from? And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, has John seen a sea of glass before? Yes. Keep your finger in chapter 15 and go back to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter five, in, in verse 5, he's talking about you've got the throne of God, starting in verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And that's where in, in the center and around the throne, you've got the four living creatures. So he has seen the sea of glass before. That is in pr the, the presence of God. That's where this thing is. Now, in chapter 15, it's not just a sea of glass. This is a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, what is fire often a picture of in the Bible? Judgment. And so now here's this sea of glass mixed with fire. And in the midst of impending judgment... John sees something else as well. So I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Stop there for a moment. Now, the beast was given authority. He was given power. He was given exousia. That's power, but also the ability to use it. He's been given the authority to use it. And specifically, what has he been given authority over? Hint, it has to do with the saints. What was the beast given the ability, the power to do relative to the saints? He was given the authority to overcome them. Now, for the beast relative to the saints. What does that mean? He has the ability to overcome them. So what does he have the ability to do? He can kill them. He can kill them. And that is overcoming them. That is the limit of his overcoming. Is it interesting that the people who he has killed who he has overcome, who in the eyes of everybody he has been victorious over, how does God look at it? And who was victorious? They were. They overcame the beast. They were victorious. So, why? How? Rick?
Okay, the question is, is this word overcome the same word as was used earlier? Yes, it is. It's nikao from Nike, victorious, overcomer. It's the same word. Okay, so the distinction is, yes, he has the ability to kill them. He can overcome their resistance in, in, the, in, the, in the idea that he can sentence them to death. He can carry out that sentence. Yet, what have they done? Why are they called overcomers by God? They didn't bend. They didn't give in. See, and here again, this is something that we need to consider, all right? We think, and, and when you catch yourself thinking this way, you need to stop. And you need to get your thinking in order. We tend to think when somebody is sick, how do we think God is going to be glorified in this situation? They get healed physically. They stay here. And we think that is what glorifies God the most. Keep your finger in Revelation and go back to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and he's met Peter, and he has confronted Peter over Peter's denials of him. Verse 18, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter was going to be crucified. Now tradition has it that when he came to be crucified, he asked to be crucified <laughs> upside down because he wasn't worthy to be killed in the same fashion as his redeemer. That death glorified God. We have had a number of people here over the years now who have died, who have gone on. Tell me, did they glorify God in their death? And how did they do it? How did they do that? That's not a rhetorical question. Perseverance in the faith of the saints. 
tell me. When you encounter somebody who weighs half what they used to because their body's been ravaged by cancer, and yet when you talk to them, there's a smile on their face. There's no bitterness. There's a hope that you cannot crush. There's the knowledge that heaven awaits. There's a peaceableness when the storm is raging. In my mind right now, I have faces of people. They glorify God by demonstrating the grace of God in the midst of great affliction, in the midst of great trouble. That's one of the ways. He can't overcome them, Andrew. Someone had a question? I'm sorry. Oh, their testimony, absolutely. Okay, so the, the comment is that their testimony lives on. Where's the biblical example for that? It's ancient. Abel, exactly. She did it again. Abel, right? When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, he being dead, the first guy to get murdered, right? The first guy in the history of the world. In fact, the first guy, as much as we know, the first guy to actually die, the first human being to die, in the history of mankind, he being dead still speaks because his testimony continues on because he was righteous. And so here again, you've got these and it is a massive throng. And they are back in Revelation 15. They're standing on the sea of glass and they're holding harps. Now, some of us might be thinking, uh, what's the deal about harps? What are harps associated with? I'm sorry, Anna Rose. <laughs> okay, what are harps associated with? Okay, angels, but more specifically, Why do you hold, why do you have a harp? What are you going to do with it? You're going to play it. Harps are associated with praise. Harps are associated with worship. That's why these people have them. Gunner? Saul. Yes, David used a harp to soothe Saul. One of the primary reasons why Saul had him, right? He would have these moods. 
Harps are associated with praise, with worship. Now, we're going to take a couple minutes here. In fact, I'm going to jump down. Nah, nah, we'll just keep going. They've got harps. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So, they are singing. What is one of the things that you have to have if you are going to, you know what, I'll just do it this way. Do you sing when you're depressed? (laughs) Most people don't. Because what is singing an expression of? Expression of joy, it's an expression, again, out of the abundance of the heart, I'm going to bend this a little bit, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth sings. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude, by the way, uh, I saw this the other day, it's not the happy person that's grateful. It's the grateful person who's happy. When you, have added, when you have gratitude overflowing in your heart, that naturally results in singing. By the way, I know that some of you can't carry a tune in a five-gallon bucket. I've sat next to you, I know. That should not have any correlation to what comes out of your mouth when we're singing. I'm convinced that God is more pleased with the singing of somebody who is tone deaf but who is singing the praises of God from a full heart than he is with somebody who's a Pavarotti and a heart that's cold. Singing is the expression of the joy and the gratitude that is in our heart. If you find yourself not being able to sing or choosing not to sing on Sunday morning, you you might want to be checking your heart as to whether or not you're grateful as you ought to be, as to whether or not you're getting sucked into the circumstances of life and just seeing the storm that is around here and not seeing the God who is sovereign over your circumstances and who gives you the grace in order to overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of them. They've got harps, and they sing. Now, the song of Moses. What's generally being referred to as the song of Moses? You see the song of Moses referenced in Exodus chapter 15. Now, Exodus chapter 15 comes right after Exodus chapter 14, right? I don't mean to be Captain Obvious, but it comes right after Exodus 14. What happened in Exodus 14? They're crossing the Red Sea. Yep. And so here you have, and again, that's on the heels of the Passover. So you have the Passover, you have the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, and then they're, they're wandering through, they're pinned against the Red Sea. By the way, when you read that, God pinned them against the Red Sea. 
He told them, you stay here. Remember, the cloud is going before them. The, 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 the column of fire is going before them. And God brings them to that point. He pins them there to sucker Pharaoh in with his army. Yeah, and then he moves around to where he's between them and the Egyptians. God orchestrated that whole thing. And so all of a sudden, Red Sea opens up. They walk through on dry ground. The Egyptians try to follow them. They get drowned, not one survivor. And Moses comes out on the other side, and he's got something to say. He's got praise to offer because they have just been miraculously delivered. You have the song of the Lamb. Have not we been miraculously delivered? I may not have been delivered from the Red Sea, but I have been set free from the slavery of sin. I have been set free from its power. There's the song, the Passover and that deliverance, those point to Jesus. Jesus fulfills all of that. And so here you have all of these things that you could look at and you can say, this is so praiseworthy on God's behalf. Now let's read what it is that they're singing. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. They're singing the song of Moses. They're singing the song of the Lamb. And they have not referenced the Exodus, the Passover, or the cross in any of those things. What does this praise focus on? focuses on God. Satan, Satan's great sin that got him thrown out of heaven was what? The five I wills, right? I will be like the most high. We don't have time. I wish we did. I'm tempted to take it because we started a little late. I have listed in your notes all of the sections in the book of Revelation where praise is offered to God. Chapter 4, verse 8 and 11. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse uh, 11 to 13. That should be an 11 to 13. I'm sorry, that's a typo. Chapter 7, verse 12. Chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. These verses, 15, 3, and 4. And then also in chapter 16, 5, and 6. I will tell you right now that there is a word that is conspicuously absent from every one of those passages. You will not find the word I. You will not find that personal pronoun. Because worship of God is characterized in heaven by it's about him. It is not about me. It's not about what he did for me. It is about him. 
and it focuses entirely on him. Can I tell you, that's probably the foremost reason why worship is never going to get old in heaven. How can you possibly tire when we are able to see God face to face, unfettered, to see him as he is? How is it possible that we could ever get tired or weary or ho-hum about singing his praise? Everything is focused on him. By the way, the sea of glass, that was in God's presence. That's within eyeshot. That's where they are. They are in his presence, being able to sing his praise. That's how they overcame. That's why at the end of the day, they're the ones who were victorious. Yeah, their bodies got killed. But they stand in God's presence. The people who killed them? Not so. Um, actually, it was referred to, so the question is, is the, is the sea of glass, is that like the sea of gold? Actually, it was described being clear like crystal. So that part is, no, that's not going to be the gold. We're going to find that in the new heaven. And that's going to be described when we get into chapters 21 and 22. So this is, this is the one that, the idea is, is that it is, it's clear. So when you have something that is so clear that it's basically transparent, that's the idea. It's utterly uncontaminated. There's no cloudiness. And so God is just characterized by that idea that everything that is around him is utterly pure. Utterly pure. In fact, we're going to see that um, right now. After these things I looked, verse 5, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. So again, the idea here, the temple, that the word for temple here is the word that was used to describe the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant. What was important about the Ark of the Covenant? That was the presence of God amongst his people. And there was something else that was in the Holy of Holies. Don't think of a physical object. The Shekinah glory was in the Holy of Holies. So when you go back to the tabernacle and when you go to Solomon's temple, you've got the Shekinah. And so here you have this, this representation of God's presence amongst his people. And so here you have the idea. And by the way, in the tabernacle was the, ta was the Holy of Holies open in the tabernacle. No, it's not open. It's got a veil. In the temple, there was a veil. 
because sinful man could not come into God's presence, right? Okay, so here you've got the, you've got the veil, and the only person who can go in there is the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? That's the only person who can ever go in. And in fact, they, tied, they would tie a rope to his ankle so that if he died in God's presence, they could pull him out. Because no one else is going to be able to go in there to grab him, right? Here we see it's open. Now, why is it open? Jesus opened it, right? After the crucifixion, what happened to the veil in, Solom- in, in, in the second temple? It's torn in half, right? It's ripped in two from the top to the bottom. We'll go into that someday because the, that part of the, the temple was very high. There's no way anybody's going to be able to start at the top and rip it down to the bottom. Oh, yeah, it was, it was quite the, the drapery that separated it off. Correct. And so uh, the comment is, you know, that, that in Hebrews it talks about that the veil has been separated, it's been torn by Christ. Christ has given us access to God, direct access to God. So here you have the temple that is op- the, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony is open, and the seven angels are coming out from there. So the seven angels have been in God's presence. And here they come out. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. And now this word for bowl is a shallow saucer. So it's not, he's not talking like he's giving them a five-gallon bucket so that he can pour out a whole five-gallon bucket. Frankly, the whole idea here of what's being poured out is it's a metaphor. It's, an, it's a symbol. So here you have, but the idea is, here it comes. doesn't have to be a lot because it's straight. It's not mixed. And it's going to be poured out in its entirety. The thing when it comes to judgment, it's not too little, it's not too much, it's going to be perfectly adequate. They're given the seven bowl, the golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So what's the picture here? When, when are these bowls going to get dumped out? It's imminent. This isn't something where this is going to be taking a long time. This isn't, you know, it's going to take three and a half years for this to happen. This is imminent. It's going to start next week in our study. Questions? pray. Father, thank you that your saints are victorious, and they are victorious because of you. They were rescued by you. They were given grace by you. They were strengthened by you. They were encouraged by you, and they were held by you.
and they could not be overcome. Their faith could not be overcome. And Father, just as that is true of them, that is true of us. Not because we're something special, but because we're yours. We were called by you, we were bought by you, and we're kept by you. And we are so grateful. Because at the end, you will deliver us. Now, Father, we may not, we won't endure these things. But we are going to endure the things that you bring for us. And whether that be difficulty in the form of persecution, whether that be difficulty in the form of um, temptation, whatever form it takes, Father, help us to be faithful. Create in our hearts the desire to live for you so completely that we would endure any hardship, that we would not bring reproach to your great name. Help us to be consumed with the thought of your glory, your reputation. Father, help us to speak as we should. Help us to think as we should. And may all of our actions be grounded and rooted in devotion and adoration of you. Help us to become preoccupied even now with the idea of looking at you when it comes to our praise and forgetting us that we may magnify you. Help us to do that this morning. Help our singing to be vigorous because it's powered by grateful hearts. And help our adoration of you to be so consuming that we would set aside any thought of reservation, that we would be given wholly to you. You are a great and awesome God. You're the only great and awesome God. The one who is, in fact, sovereign over everything. Help us to worship you that way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.